News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you heard in the news, a small cabinet shuffle happening in about one hour from now. Well, here to look at that and what is going to be a very busy period ahead of Parliament resuming. Our chief political correspondent, David Aiken, is joining us from Ottawa. David, good morning to you. Happy to be here. It's going to be a busy uh, pre pre-parliament season. Yeah, so let's talk. We'll start off talking about the cabinet shuffle, or as you've been calling it, the mini cabinet shuffle. What do we know? What can we expect at this point? Yeah, maybe maybe cabinet adjustment, uh, squeeze, I don't know. It's really tiny. Um, essentially what's happening, it, it's involving just two ministers, and nobody is leaving cabinet, and nobody, no backbencher is getting promoted. Uh, what happened here is uh, one of the ministers that is essentially switching jobs with another has some uh, family health issues, and they just like a, a portfolio that's a little less demanding. Uh, so that's what we know. Our sources in the PMO. Uh, other sources we've worked suggest that the minister who requested the changes uh, is Philomena Tassi. Uh, Philomena Tassi is a Hamilton, Ontario MP. She is the minister for public services procurement. That's a very big job. That's the job. That's the minister who has to buy everything. It, but during the pandemic, it was Anita Anand, and she was the one buying all those vaccines. So that's what this minister does, is at the very center of all government purchasing. Um, she apparently has said, listen, that is a big job. She's, she, she, we understand she may, her family may have some health issues she wants to attend to. So another minister she'll swap with. Um, that is what we believe at, at this point. We'll find out at 10 o'clock Eastern. Um, our friends uh, at La Presse, the, uh, the Montreal uh, media outlet, reported that Vancouver MP Joyce Murray was going to uh, move out of the fisheries portfolio. Um, again, that's La Presse. We can't confirm that. And we don't think that there's more than, uh, uh, we don't, we're, we're not, we don't, aren't able to confirm that Joyce Murray's going to be involved. I have not been able to contact uh, Joyce Murray. Tried yesterday and tried to contact Philomena Tassi today. But um, in any event, I just thought, particularly for, for folks in BC, that was something to address since, again, uh, a newspaper in Quebec was reporting this. But at this point, two ministers, nobody leaving cabinet, is just switching jobs. All right. So, yes, the, the mini, miniest of shuffles or miniest adjustments, shuffles. as you said. Uh, so that's happening. That we'll, we'll find out a bit more about that later on. What about what's going to be happening next as far as a busy couple of weeks? Yeah, so, so this, is an, this is an important first step. Obviously, you want to get your, if you're the prime minister, you want to get your cabinet lined up, geared up for the, 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 the uh, as I say, the pre-parliament season. After today, we look ahead to next week when all the cabinet is coming your way. They're going to be in Vancouver for a, a couple of, a two-day retreat. Um, that's where they'll have meetings all day. They'll be sorting out what's going on, what to do about Ukraine, what to do about inflation, other economic matters, how to make government work, what's going on with their airports. I mean, the agenda is very full. And again, those are two days of meetings in Vancouver next week. So that's the cabinet retreat. And then when the week concludes next week, then all eyes back here in Ottawa because the conservative leadership race is finally going to conclude. It looks like Pierre Polyev is going to be the new conservative leader. He's certainly the front runner. So that concludes on Saturday. And then after that, the Liberals, all the Liberal MPs, they go to the other end of the country to a beautiful St. Andrews by the Sea in New Brunswick for a Liberal caucus retreat where the entire caucus will look at the agenda ahead. But my bet, the entire Liberal caucus is going to be talking about Pierre Polyev or whoever won the conservative leadership. 
And then we get to Parliament reopening in the fall and uh, and uh, and the way we're at it. So it is sort of a busy uh, it's a busy couple of weeks ahead. And today is sort of a first day with this is a cabinet adjustment. And we will hear uh, from the prime minister. He'll be taking some questions after uh, after the swearing in ceremony. All right. What are your thoughts on, like you said, it's it's anticipated Pierre Polyev is going to be the next conservative leader. We haven't heard a ton uh, from liberals or it's, it's not as if it's been overly nasty, uh, like an election campaign. But how concerned do you think they are about this? Well, I, th- I think they I think they are a little bit concerned. I mean, they're looking at the polls like everybody else. They see the same public polls we do. And, uh, you know, over the summer, uh, the Liberals were trailing. Right now, I think most of the public polls, it's, it's a tie, and we'll see how Polyev does. It's impossible to ignore the number of people that have been coming out to Polyev rallies. And he was just, he actually, he, he finished up his campaign in Vancouver just a couple of days ago, um, and he had six or 700 people out at a rally in Sydney on, the, uh, on Vancouver Island. He had about 1,000 up in Nanaimo. You don't get that numbers in a general election campaign, let alone a leadership race. So there is something there's something different about what Polyev has been saying and the way he's been going saying it. He's a populist in the sense that the, the crux of his campaign is really to say you can't trust the Bank of Canada. You can't trust a federal institution like the government of Canada. You can't trust other institutions like the media, like us. And to, th- there's a great number of people who seem to like that message. Now, once he's won the leadership, if you have won the leadership on a basis of you can't trust government, the Bank of Canada, the Supreme Court, whatever, how do you build sort of a how do you then sort of build a government consensus? How do you win government and convince people you can govern? That I think is going to be a tricky proposition for Polyev. It's going to open up some different angles of attack for conservatives, New Democrats, the Bloc Québécois in Quebec. Um, it's going to change. The, I think it's going to change the way we we talk about politics. It already has the way Polyev's campaign has gone, and um, and again, there's there's no there's no getting around the success of that message that Polyev has had in terms of the numbers of people who've signed up for the Conservative Party. I mean, it's about six seven hundred six or seven hundred thousand people, incredible numbers, and uh, and now we'll see how many actually vote. The latest stats we'd had again, the vote concludes. I think all the votes had to be in the mail by right about now. And of this, those six or seven hundred thousand that, that signed up, up, the latest we had about half had cast a vote. So a lot of people may have signed up just to say, "Yeah, go get them," and then never followed through on the actual voting. And, and that is an issue too for all politicians. You gotta, you gotta get people out to vote, and then we'll see uh, how the counting goes. All right, interesting times and busy times as well. David, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. No problem, Jill. Cheers. Have a great morning. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, could it be as more and more people are returning to the workplace, they are finding themselves sick of loungewear? Hmm, let's bring in CKNW Mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal to talk more about this. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Were you one of these folks that ended up buying a lot of loungewear over the pandemic? I did not because I never worked from home. So I just Uh, kept, although I, I shouldn't suggest that I dress up for work. I don't, but jeans, you know, I stayed with the jeans the entire time through. Yeah. And for some people like jeans were quite relaxed to even go that far was a lot for some folks, depending on their work or their position. But a lot of people got hooked on loungewear during the pandemic because, yeah, they were working from home. A lot of folks uh, would wear sweatpants on the bottom 
and then they would wear like a fancier shirt up top for those Zoom meetings. Um, I admit to doing the same. I did that plenty during the pandemic. But, you know, retailers, they could not pivot instantaneously. It took time for them to turn to loungewear during the beginning of the pandemic because usually they're a whole year out from production. And then they had to start designing collections and producing clothes that people actually wanted to wear. People wanted elasticized waists and people wanted uh, different colors of the same uh, uh, sweatpants outfit, uh, loungewear. And we also had these significant supply chain issues. So things were a bit sluggish getting to us. Well, fast forward to today, there are so many reports now that with the workers that are back at the office and many more still heading back, their closets are full of clothes that they cannot wear to the office because they've got all these sweatpants that they've become used to. And also, this is affecting the retail inventory. It's filled with pandemic wear that people don't want to buy. So they're having to slash prices. Like right now, if you are in the market for a pair of jogging pants, uh, you'll probably get a good deal. It's interesting because I remember now one of the earlier days because uh, when I was still coming downtown and I was on Granville Street and where the storefronts are at Pacific Center. And I remember one day walking down Granville and every mannequin in the store was wearing a sweatsuit. And they jazzed them up with bags and scarves and such. But I remember thinking, oh, every single article of clothing in that store is stretchy because that's what people want. So I guess it makes sense that people are moving away from that. Yeah, I even read an article that said the shape of people's feet and in some cases the size of a person's uh, shoe has now changed since the pandemic because for women because what's happened is women started wearing more comfortable shoes over the pandemic they weren't wearing their tight heels anymore and cramping their foot into a tiny shoe that they're tottering around all uh, all day long and so their feet have changed. Now, I haven't tested this because I am also one of the guilty who has been wearing comfortable shoes since the pandemic started. And I don't see myself going back. And I used to love shoes. Yeah. So all of this, I guess, means retailers are going to have a lot of supply or they're going to have to pivot a little bit to, to, make, to, to make the best of it. So apparently market reports show that there's an inventory sales ratio right now that represents a 15-year high because customers are not buying their stuff. So that means retailers have this excess of inventory, like I said, because they usually plan a year out. And so there are going to be big sales. All right. Well, I guess that is a good thing for the consumer to keep in mind. Yeah, maybe for some consumers. I've told myself, and I told myself this early on in the pandemic, which was no more loungewear. I let myself buy a couple of pieces, but I didn't want to get too comfortable. (laughs) Probably a a good rule of thumb. Uh, We'll leave it there. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's take a look at these new findings when it comes to alcoholic beverages and guidelines. A proposed overhaul of Canada's old drinking guidelines warns of increased health risks from as few as three drinks per week. It also says mandatory labeling of alcoholic beverages would be a good idea. It's a suggested update to Canada's low-risk alcohol drinking guidelines and the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse and Addiction. 
addiction is taking a look at those numbers and putting forward that message once again that less is better when we are talking about alcohol. Well, Dr. Peter Arbutt is an associate professor of academic family medicine at the University of Saskatchewan and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, any surprises as far as we know that there are risks that go with alcohol consumption, but I think uh, a lot of people are looking at these numbers and thinking they are they are very, very low. But any surprises there for you? Well, frankly, um, I, was, I was personally surprised at uh, what the numbers were because uh, we had reviewed the evidence very, very closely in a rigorous process, um, but until we actually did the risk curves and saw where the thresholds were, uh, we didn't anticipate that they would be quite so low. So this is a reflection of the toxicity, if you will, of alcohol and the impact it has on people's health. So looking at the findings then, so the risk is negligible to low if you're somebody, if you have two drinks a week or or less than two drinks a week, and then not a huge surprise gets more and more risky as you have higher consumption? Yes, that's absolutely right. And the comparison that we used were people who were lifelong abstainers. One of the challenges with previous research and the reason why uh, these numbers are as low as they are is because previously we used current abstainers, which included sick quitters. We realized, well, this, this was an unhealthy group of people. They're, they're not drinking because they're, they're ill. So lifelong abstainers um, was the comparison, which is a much more accurate way of looking at what drinking alcohol actually does to one's health. And when you look at the types of cancer that this study in particular links to alcohol consumption and cancer deaths, is that the message really that needs to get out as far as there is a real link between the two? Well, that's one of the messages. Certainly, there's, there's a number of uh, important health conditions that people need to be aware of because it, it helps to individualize their risk. With regards to cancer specifically, yes, you're absolutely right. There are seven different types of cancer that are causally related to alcohol, and 24% of breast cancer is uh, due to alcohol. 20% of colon cancer, 15% of rectal cancer, 13% of liver cancer, and so on for the mouth, the throat, the, the larynx, the esophagus. It's important that people are aware of this, and uh, that's one of the fundamental principles that, that we're engaged in with this project is ensuring that, that people are informed so they can situate their drinking in that continuum of risk and make informed decisions. Uh, one of the questions that I keep hearing is, uh, th- but people uh, suggesting, well, wait a minute, aren't there other studies? Uh, haven't we been told in the past that having a glass of red wine a night uh, with dinner or drinking a moderate amount of red wine is actually good for you? You're absolutely right. And that was based upon um, previous evidence and when they were looking at the cardiovascular impact of, of alcohol. And uh, indeed, what we found at low levels, very low levels at one to two or even the three to six standard drinks per week is that it had neither a negative effect nor a positive effect. So really it it muted out that uh, alcohol, that message that alcohol was good for your heart. And as people's consumption increases, it becomes more deleterious to one's heart. Indeed, in the, um, the World Heart Federation in 2020 or 2021 came out with a report that reviewed all of this literature and said 
alcohol is not good for your heart. It should not be recommended. All right. Does it matter what kind of alcohol, if we're talking beer, wine, or spirits? No, no. It's it's all ethanol, and our definition of a standard drink, which is obscure to a lot of people, 13.45 grams of uh, alcohol, is the same amount of alcohol in a um, in a standard beer, in a um, five ounce glass of wine, and 1.5 ounces of spirits. So this is uh, essentially the, the same amount across the board, and it has the same effect regardless of the type of beverage. But in order to manage this, consumers need to know how to measure it. And so that's one of the reasons we've called for information labeling on beverage alcohol, so people can be informed and make um, appropriate decisions for themselves. All right, Dr. Peter Arbutt, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing the study findings with us. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, in the midst of what is being called a dire staffing shortage, the union representing ECOM's 911 operators is asking for the employer to extend temporary compensation and psychological supports that have been in place. And joining us for more on that is Donald Grant, president of the Emergency Communications Professionals of BC. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Can you talk a bit about the staffing shortage and how are things operating right now? So unfortunately, Ecom is still at uh, crisis staffing levels, despite us sounding the alarm constantly. Um, We're seeing constant messages uh, uh, pleading for more staff to come in. There have been threats of overtime basically every single weekend this summer. And uh, leading up into the, uh, the, the Labor Day long weekend, there's a possibility of forced overtime virtually every single day. And what that's looking like is uh, our 911 operators are, are essentially taking call after call after call um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, at significant risk of burnout as we're, we're continuing at these minimum staffing levels. Hmm. And when somebody is working in a, in a forced overtime situation, how many hours is that or what does that look like? Yeah, so uh, the the way that it works, so uh, 911 operators work 12-hour shifts. So we'll we'll come in and uh, uh, log into our phone, and then we'll receive our first call. Um, it's a common misconception that uh, 911 operators actually pick up the phone. Um, there's this uh, computer software called CallForce, which uh, brings the the emergency calls into our headset in order to save those uh, very critical se- seconds. So uh, we'll be receiving, uh, we'll be answering an hour one call, and then immediately after that call is over, another one will appear in our ear. And we're doing that for 12 hours. And then what forced overtime looks like is that towards the end of your shift, a supervisor or a manager will come onto the floor and they'll have a letter. And that letter will be addressed to one of our 911 operators on the floor. And then they'll walk up to that 911 operator and hand them the letter and be like, you're, you're required to come in and work one of your days off as, uh, as forced overtime. And this is over and on top of the excessive amounts of overtime that are already being worked. And so how much notice would you get if somebody walks in with the letter and says you're next for, for coming in on your day off? How much notice would you get before that forced overtime? Yeah, so uh, uh, the... Our typical shifts are two days, two nights, four days off. So it would be anywhere within your your four days off. So it could be 24 hours notice. It could be 48 hours notice, but it's very little. And if you say it's something like, I'm sorry, I don't have childcare. I have a medical appointment or or any of those reasons. What happens then? 
Yeah, so on the letter, it says that you're expected to come in to make arrangements. And if you're unable to, to work that shift, you have to find another employee to work it for you. So what, what we're finding is that, uh, you know, we're receiving these messages that possible forced overtime is coming up. Um, folks are burnt out. They've been working so much overtime. One of our members reached out that was forced in recently that was working, uh, was saying, I'm averaging two overtime shifts every week. Um, that's over on top, and then uh, she's getting for- forced in for overtime. It's a terrible situation that, uh, that that's really uh, uh, stretching our 911 operators then. Yeah, that's got to be stressful also, I would imagine, not knowing when it might be your turn or you're up next to do that. Yeah, it's a tremendous amount of stress, not knowing when it's your turn, not knowing if you're up next, and not knowing whether or not the forced overtime uh, or the, the staffing deficiencies have been filled. It's, it's been putting our 911 operators on edge for the whole entire summer, and there is no end in sight. So Ecom has provided some enhancements as far as weekends, uh, increased pay for overtime work, also helping out with mental health supports and that kind of thing. So from what I understand, those are set to expire next month. And is it the union's position that if nothing is going to be done as far as staffing levels, at least keep those in place? Yes, 100%. So at least keep those uh, provisions in place. They have helped. I, I can't even imagine where we would be right now if, if those additional measures have not been in. Uh, really what we're having trouble doing is retaining folks. And we hire about 100 new and own operators a year. Um, the problem is that we're, people are leaving faster than we can train them. So um, what 911 operators are leaving for is similar emergency services work. Uh, there are other organizations that either pay the same or significantly better or have a more manageable workload. And that's where we're losing our 911 operators too. What kind of a salary are you looking at if you become a 911 operator? Yeah, the starting wage is uh, $28 an hour, um, which is uh, you know, uh, a, a, a critical issue that we're experiencing. Um, but the, at the end of the day, the, the, the point that we're, uh, we're having our, our toughest uh, 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 situation in is uh, retaining the staff once they get in. Um, we uh, we have had a tremendous support from the community, and and uh, as the president, I attend these new employee orientations, and these folks have heard the stories out there. They are signing up, they're applying to go help their communities. The problem is, is that uh, the the current workload um, is is unsustainable, and that the there is such a strong competition for these highly skilled, highly qualified operators who interact with these. Um, very complicated computer systems that know how to handle people on the worst days of their lives. Um, they are such a, a, a highly desired employee that uh, we're we're finding that uh, other organizations are recruiting them right out of our pool. Mm. And because exactly the way you described it as well, certainly not for everybody. This is a highly stressful job and you're going to be dealing with some pretty, uh, could be potentially disturbing scenarios and some high stakes scenarios. Yeah, uh, uh, we have to treat every call like an emergency until we're able to uh, uh, assess otherwise, and we're dealing with the full range of uh, emergencies that you can imagine. That could be anywhere from uh, someone having a heart attack. That could be to uh, armed robbery in progress. That could be, uh, you know, a, a mass shooting event. Like we have to be able to prepare to be prepared at, to handle these very dire emergencies, and that that is what we are there to do: is to answer your call for help and get you the help you need fast. So have you heard anything back then about extending these additional supports or what's being done about staffing shortages in the short term or the long term? 
Unfortunately, uh, uh, we haven't heard anything back. Uh, what we've been told is that they're assessing the situation. And unfortunately, when it comes to emergency services, like we, we need stability in these, uh, in these uh, roles. We need to know that uh, these solutions are either becoming permanent or are going to be in place for a long period of time so that uh, the 911 operators have the support and reassurance and recognition that this job is in, in uh, dire straits and that uh, there is investment coming and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. All right. Well, we will check back in with you, uh, I'm sure. Donald Grant, thank you, though, so much for making the time this morning. Thanks so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, just more than a month and a half to go, and the Nonpartisan Association has unveiled its replacement candidate vying for the job of mayor that for the upcoming Vancouver civic election. At an announcement yesterday, it took place outside the Roxy Cabaret on Granville Street. The party announced that it had, in fact, selected former West Vancouver police officer Fred Harding to run for mayor. And Fred Harding joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill, and thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for making the time. Now, you ran for mayor in the past. You've previously run, uh, not successful. What made you want to do it again? Well, it's about commitment, and it's about uh, the opportunity to do something for the city that uh, can be, you know, uh, like legacy building. We, I, when I was approached about running again, it's about they, they called me about leadership, and the, and the conversation was all about leadership. And uh, yes, you're absolutely right. As everybody knows, I, I didn't uh, win last time, but uh, they recognized in terms of my uh, past history in policing uh, that I have a lot to contribute in leadership and, and what we can bring to the city. And running for the NPA, you could argue the, the NPA is not the same party it was even last time when you were in the race for mayor. If we look back a few years, are you concerned at all that that party is a bit fractured right now? Actually, the, the party's even stronger. So every party's allowed to go through, uh, through change. Every party has, you know, whether it's a, a federal party, an international party. We look at the UK, what goes on there. And uh, every party has a change in leadership. We know that that's just a, a, a matter of fact. The NPA is a, a party that has uh, been around for almost 100 years. We've gone through change. There's absolutely no doubt. And some of that change was painful. But what we've got now is an incredible slate of candidates We've got an incredible, incredible uh, team of people who are ready to lead. So I think that uh, when you look at the, the quality and the, uh, the background that they're bringing to the table, this is the NPA that actually the city's been waiting for. You uh, did your announcement or you made your speech yesterday. Uh, it was very much focused on crime and fighting crime. So what would you actually do then in the position of mayor to uh, deal with the stranger attacks? We've just had more happening in the city. What would your plan be to deal with crime and increasing crime in the city? Okay, well, thank you, because this is my wheelhouse. So attacking crime is something that I've, I've been able to do. And, and as you know, as a police officer for over 30 years. So crime, attacking crime, uh, I, I won't go into the, the, the minutia, but it's about having an intelligence-led police department and also working with your channel partners. Crime is not only the purview of the police alone, but uh, we have to set a strategy. We have to set priorities. And we have to be able to target the individuals that we know are responsible for most of this. So one of the things that I was able to do in policing was actually set targets on on particular criminals and and very, very successfully. And I just want to go back to one of the other responsibilities I had in the UK. I was brought in to deal with a, a 
very raucous um, crime-ridden estate in East London. One of the biggest problems was drugs and racial assaults because they had a, a lot of refugees there. And I arrested a lot of people, and I brought the, the, uh, the, the crime stats down tremendously, as well as uh, actually rid the area for that time that I was there of the racial attacks that were going on. It's not difficult. It just takes a focused approach. And so is that what you would plan to do in Vancouver? I would absolutely plan to do the same. First of all, the, the police department need, needs a mayor that supports them, and we don't have that at the moment. We have to have a, a police department that has a very clear strategy of what it's set out to do. And I'd be making sure that our, where our focus is is where the people are most afraid. I, I'm, I'm speaking to lots of people who are uh, certainly afraid to go out. I, I did a, an interview yesterday with the uh, Chinese radio station, and the staff were all relaying stories of their own personal fears and the fears of their family and just walking down the street. That's what we've got to get rid of. And we can't have a perception of crime as well as the reality of crime. I, as the mayor, I would show the leadership in making sure that we tackle crime exactly where it hurts, getting the people who are the few people who are committing the most crime. It's not difficult. I understand as well that you've recently been working in China and consulting in China. Did you come back specifically to run for mayor? I absolutely did. You're quite right, yes. And are you concerned at all that people will remember you as a former candidate, somebody who was against Soji? Uh, no, look, so let, let, I, it's, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I was actually never against Soji. I've actually been for Soji. What, it might, what my statement was, and it's an important statement was, is that parents were not involved in the decision-making process that brought Soji into the schools. I actually support uh, anything that makes our, our schools safer for the students. I absolutely 1,000% support anything that, is, that brings strength and identity to uh, LGBTQ uh, children, youth, and people. So I would fight to the death for those rights. But I, my point uh, four years ago was that the parents were not involved in the decision-making process. That was the issue around Soji. Not that I was against Soji. I've never been against Soji. All right, Fred Harding, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for making time for us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for the time and the opportunity. Have a great day. You too. This is Mornings with Simi. Joel Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Well, we know that Vancouver's Chinatown has seen an increase in violence, in hate attacks, in graffiti, property damage, and so on. It's a similar situation, or at least it was, in San Francisco's Chinatown as well. However, that city has found some creative ways to battle the increased crime and property damage. And now there is a delegation from Vancouver trying to learn from what San Francisco did. Howard Chow joins us, Deputy Chief Constable with the Vancouver Police Department, to talk a bit more about this. Good morning to you. Good morning, Joe. Good to talk to you again. Uh, great to chat with you. And I understand you are uh, in San Francisco and the delegation is uh, fully into this trip. We are. We've been here since Monday and uh, spent all day yesterday and a better part of Monday afternoon uh, talking to the community le- leaders, business leaders, been doing the same thing uh, um, for a better part of today. That's what's on the itinerary so far. So. And so what have you learned so far about how San Francisco was able to battle a lot of the same issues that we're seeing in Vancouver's Chinatown? Well, I think everybody's well aware of, all your listeners are aware of the uh, significant challenges that Vancouver's had to deal with, everything from the anti-Asian hate crime. There isn't probably a week that goes by where there's some assault or some uh, violence that's uh, 
that's taking place on our Chinatown streets, but also the graffiti. You can't look more than two, three buildings without seeing graffiti on the walls. Um, and the entrenched street disorder. Every time a merchant's trying to get into his or her building, uh, there, there's somebody encamped um, in the front of it. So these are some, some issues that Chinatown in Vancouver's had to deal with. Well, very similar to some of the challenges that San Francisco's had to deal with. The difference is San Francisco's the second largest outside of Hong Kong China, in terms of a Chinatown. It's 24 blocks long, um, third most Asian uh, uh, community uh, in terms of size. They've also had a huge spike on their Asian hate crime over the last two years, and they were experiencing much of the similar type issues that we've seen in Vancouver. So over the last day or so, you know, when you walk down their Chinatown here in San Francisco, you're seeing that it's vibrant. There's a lot of vitality, lots of tourism, people everywhere. There's, there's, uh, you got to really search to find any graffiti. Um, clearly, you could walk blocks without seeing any graffiti at all. Um, and just in terms of some of their programming and beautifications of their uh, of their alleys and laneways. Like we've, they've got 55 alleys, and I think something like 45, 48 of them, uh, they've completely gone through, painted put up lanterns, um, art. So it's just uh, amazing in terms of some of the work that's gone on down here. Uh, what about actually people being present? Because I know in Vancouver's Chinatown, that's been one of the issues, and especially during the pandemic, there just weren't a lot of people around and eyes on the street. Uh, tourists weren't there. Uh, I would imagine with a 24-block Chinatown, like the one in San Francisco, it might be a bit easier to get more of those, the eyes of the public and more people. It is. It's bustling down here, and, and there, granted, there are, are some differences in terms of they've got a large resident population in their Chinatown. However, uh, you know, I think that they've really invested heavily, not only the community but different levels of government, in trying to fix some of these issues. And which means, uh, when they're they're investing, it not only means uh, uh, everybody has to step up, everybody has to roll up their their sleeves, but also funding. And so when they see graffiti go up, they're all over it right, right, right away. It's, it's not waiting. The merchants aren't being charged. Um, they've got grants that are in place to deal with garbage pickup. But also, you know, like you get the city investment in it. And I think that that's uh, some of the, the big differences we're seeing down here. Is there a difference as well? Obviously, uh, there are different justice systems, different uh, ways of dealing with laws in that one of the complaints here is that revolving door is the fact that we see prolific shoplifters. Uh, we've seen people who have multiple interactions with police and there doesn't seem to be a lot of consequences. What is different, do you think, then with consequences in San Francisco? Well, I think they also struggled with it. We spoke with the San Francisco Police Department, who's been heavily engaged as well, and I think they've got an amazing relationship with their, their community, much like us. But I think that that does exist. Uh, there are differences in our laws. Uh, very often, uh, the challenges we've got with our graffiti is we can go out and arrest somebody just about every time we throw out a team. We'll go out there and we'll say, hey, this weekend, let's throw out a team, work on some of the graffiti down there, and we will make arrests. The challenge is, is that we'll get those arrests put forward. And oftentimes, um, you know, the, the individual individuals are released and... You know, it's within the confines of the criminal justice system that we're working on right now is that pretty tough to hold uh, individuals when they're marginalized or vulnerable um, and, you know, uh, uh, we get them arrested. And unless there's this kind of pub- public denunciation or condemnation of the types of crimes that are taking place in our Chinatown, we're not going to get we're not going to get any changes here.
And what about neighboring areas or uh, neighborhoods in that? Are there similarities there? Obviously, it's a much bigger community in San Francisco, uh, but it's not a secret that Chinatown in Vancouver is right next door to the downtown downtown east side. Are there similarities in San Francisco as well, say, with the Tenderloin District? Yeah, the Tenderloin District is about five, six blocks away, I think, something like that. Uh, So um, they do have a natural divide. However, uh, you know, like I mean, obviously our Chinatown is right next door, right adjacent to the downtown east side, which is suffering from a lot of challenges, you know, social issues, that sort of thing. But I think the, the, the key part that we're pulling away is that we've got to learn to be able to coexist with the, the neighborhoods that are surround Chinatown. And that means that we've got to work together. It's not an either-or proposition. And if we if we attack it from that perspective, then we're, we're going to fail. So I think that's something that's uh, really important, which means that, that uh, both the, the merchants and the residents of, of both communities have to learn to work together. And how do you address that, given that in Vancouver as well, we have a huge issue when it comes to addiction, when there is open drug use in a lot of neighborhoods, not only Chinatown or the downtown east side, and dealing with that in that, is that not also dealt with a bit differently in San Francisco? Yeah, I, I have to agree with you there. And I think pretty much up and down the coast, um, like we have, uh, uh, you know, the tolerance level in terms of uh, our laws and our ability to impact enforcement is really limited relative to other parts of the country. And so it should be in terms of uh, the types of issues that we're dealing with in Vancouver. Uh, and it is a health issue. And I know the, the encampment has only ag- exasperated problems. And, you know, this is something that uh, all levels of government have to come in and, and deal with because, if anybody's painting the picture that the encampment in the downtown east side is not a safety concern, um, well, they're wrong. I can tell you we're seeing the data and the numbers come across uh, daily that are concerning. And it don't, not only impacts the downtown east side residents, but also the neighboring communities like Chinatown and Gastown. So these are things we, we've got to get, and we've got to get it right when we're trying to find a solution here. We can't rush into it. And I know the, um, you know, the, the city as well as, uh, some elected officials in the province have been working. It's a complicated issue, but, I, but I'm telling you is that it's a problem and we'll probably have to need to address it fairly quickly because otherwise it's going to crush communities like Chinatown and Gastown. Uh, and when you say the numbers daily showing that it is a safety concern, are you saying beyond, uh, we know that there, were a, there was one scenario where some guns were discovered in a tent. Are you seeing other issues that are raising safety concerns? We are, and I think many of them have been reported on by the media in terms of the, the extreme numbers of assaults that we're seeing in, the, in that four-block footprint um, of the encampment, as well as assaults against police officers. I think we've got about nine or ten assaults against police officers in the last seven or eight weeks. Huge concern. Some of them are wherever, uh, when a police officer just happened to be driving by, stopped at a light, window down, and somebody came up and struck him with a uh, pipe. So... We're getting we're getting met with hostility uh, whenever our officers are addressing any calls for service in the blocks, but also uh, some other you know the weapons that we're finding down there is a huge concern for us. So, what do you hope to come back with from San Francisco with this four day trip uh, taking place? What do you hope you'll get from this and be able to bring back to Vancouver? Well, I think uh, we've already seen some of the programming that they have down here that we're going to bring back, explore further, see if they become, they're viable and funding is there. But on their graffiti, beautification, murals on the walls, uh, how, how they approach their alleyways, 
um, and the work that they do there, the garbage pickup, how they engage and, and bring on grants to be able to clean up the, the uh, laneways. So there's a number of different areas that uh, uh, we can explore and, and, and uh, dive into deeper when we get back. All right. Uh, Deputy Chief Constable Howard Chow, thanks so much for taking some time uh, out of the trip to speak with us this morning. Thank you, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to take a look at how kids are feeling as they gear up for going back to school next week. Many might be excited. Some might be anxious. For more on that, we are welcoming back again our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning again. Hi, Jill. I'm sure you remember going back to school as a kid, and I'm so curious which camp you fell into. Were you the one that loved going back, or were you like, it's a bummer that summer's over? Um, Neither, I don't think. Not that I loved it, but it was like, eh, okay, summer's over. I guess we'll go and uh, get another year under our belts. Nice. So it was like it was your job. Sure, yeah. (laughs) I loved it. I loved getting school supplies, those uh, Laurentian 24-pack of pencil crayons, getting a new one of those every year, that Elmer's glue bottle. I loved the snazzy new pouch for my erasers, a new backpack. I loved all that stuff. Uh, But as exciting as the return to school is for a lot of kids, uh, because they get to be back with their friends, uh, there's lots of newness, right? And sometimes that newness comes with unknowns, like who's my teacher going to be? Will I be able to navigate these new friendships? Some kids are going to a brand new school. So that comes with a lot of nerves. And I talked to UBC psychology prof Amori Mikami, and she told me that uh, nerves are normal. It's pretty typical that kids feel some sort of nervousness or anxiety about going back to school, um, even if that's not typically their personality, because it's obviously a transition and it's it's a change. Um, Not only is it different from what most kids have experienced over the summer, but uh, because of the pandemic, going on in the last couple of years it, it you know it means that for for many kids they they haven't really had continuous schooling or their their schooling hasn't been that predictable or it hasn't been that predictable their school routine um so i think that even though you know as a province we're trying to come out of the pandemic it's um it's quite natural even more so now than ever given the the pandemic context that kids might not quite know what to expect going back I think the biggest thing that parents can do is uh, listen to the feelings, hopefully in a non in a non judgmental way, and try to help the child just talk it out and understand them. Um, I think that's something that parents do that is often well intentioned, but uh, doesn't always have the the consequences that parents want. Is that when kids express nervousness or anxiety about something, parents jump in to reassure. So, you know, what that looks like is parents say, oh, you know, you don't have anything to be worried about or, you know, don't don't be nervous. It's going to be fun or, you know, you're going to make some new friends. It'll be OK. Um, that's what I mean by by reassurance. Um, of course, it's OK. It's fine to do that with your kids sometimes. But I think sometimes parents do that, too quickly. And when they do that, um, they're not giving kids a chance to 
just think about those feelings themselves and learn that they can handle or work through or cope with those feelings of anxiety by themselves. So the alternate would be, um, my advice to parents would be, you know, if, if your child seems nervous, just play around with um, spending a little time or giving a little space to um, just ask your kid a little bit more, like, you know, what is, tell me more about that. Like, what is that, what does that feel like? Um, how do you know when you're nervous? Um you know, what do you think would help? Really just before trying to jump in and tell the kid that it's okay and you don't need you don't need to feel that way. Because ultimately I think that helps to strengthen kids' resilience in the end. Interesting. I would imagine too for kids going to a new school or a whole different scenario, obviously there's gonna be some nerves and some anxiety there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Brand new situation. And no matter what age you are, I mean, shoot, even for adults, it's this way that when you walk into a room of brand new people, there's a little bit of, oh, am I going to find my own people here? Am I going to, you know, fit in? Do I belong? And so I think her tip there about getting kids to just get it out, get your feelings out, talk about it and let them just talk. And parents swoop in trying to fix things so often, but kids just need to get stuff off their chests. And then also if transitions are what's behind the nervousness for your kid, then there are things that parents can do right now, start doing now over the next several days that are very practical. Like one is to start adjusting their bedtime schedule and make sure they're going to sleep earlier, inch that time earlier every night until school starts so that they're waking up at a good time so they're not cranky in the morning. Um, And parents can start talking about the things that the kid might be looking forward to with school. So if there are nerves there, there might also be stuff that they're stoked on. Are you excited to see your friends? Which friends? Or, you know, are you excited about if it's a teen who's walking to school by themselves about taking a different route every day? You know, talking to them about things that they look forward to and not just focusing only on the things that they're nervous about. And also, if someone is going to a new school, it's good to uh, just regularly now on the daily, just go walk or bike by the school to get used to that environment so that it becomes more comfortable. And also a fun one for younger kids is get your kid to uh, pick out their first back to school outfit the night before. So they have a sense of control over some of this too. And you know, the thing with talking about feelings with kids is that resilience comes from coping with those tough feelings. So parents should know that like if your kid is able to talk to you about what they're feeling, then they're likelier to feel more safe with those feelings. But I I did ask the psychologist about what happens when there's an issue of real concern, like that a kid might be nervous, just downright anxious to go to school because of encountering mean kids again, bullying even. And here's what she had to say. I think that the, the situation is going to be different for for different kids. You know, in some cases, the you know your child might be expressing nervousness, but you actually do think that this is something that will pass and will be okay in the long term. And so, in that case, you know, just listening is probably fine, and it might really just help uh, allay the nervousness and um, give good coping skills on its own. But sometimes you are dealing with real situations where, um, you know, it feels like, well, listening isn't enough because although that might help some of the problem there, you know, there are still, there are still bullies at school. Uh, you know, the listing is not going to, not going to solve that part. So, um, you know, I, I mean, this, it's a, it's, 
It's a it's a tough issue. I think that you know many times with if if you think that the bullying um, is persistent and like for instance if it went on the year before and you know you think it might be likely to go on again this year, um, then I think as a parent you know this is something to approach the administration of the school about um, because I think that you do you do need to advocate for your child and, you know, make, make sure they're aware of it. Also, um, see, you know, see, see what they're doing about it. See what advice they have, see what support you can get. Again, good advice. And you want to, I would imagine, deal with that sooner rather than later, hopefully even before the school year starts. Yeah, being proactive about it. And then that also sends a signal to the school, to the administration that, hey, this is something of concern and I'm going to advocate for my kid if I'm doing it now. I'm only going to do it more and more as the school year goes on. So let's nip it in the bud. And uh, yeah, that, good advice. And, and we probably don't think maybe even in the, the lower grades as well, you don't think so much about anxiety. You think, oh, school's fun. Off you go. Yeah. And I remember as a kid, any time that I <laughs> mentioned any inkling of anxiety or nervousness about something, I would get talked out of it. No, you're very brave. No, you're not scared of anything. And I'd be thinking inside, really? Because I do feel a little bit <laughs> of nervousness. So I think it's it's normal that all kids, even if you're familiar with the school, even if you have a lot of friends there, there is still a degree of nervousness, just given that it's a big change, right? After having a summer of lounging and eating ice cream and running outside all day and staying up with the sun, um, it's going to be a big change for kids next week. All right. Uh, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is a very interesting development in health news, and it comes out of UBC, where a team of researchers working on developing oral insulin tablets as a replacement for those daily insulin injections have made a discovery that could be a game changer. And joining us on the line to talk more about this is Dr. Anubhav Pratap Singh, professor, also the principal investigator from the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at UBC. BC. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, um, thank you uh, uh, for inviting me. Well, this is certainly a development that a lot of people will be watching and paying attention to uh, if it could, in fact, replace those injections with oral medication. Can you talk a little bit? How did this research all come about? What were you specifically looking at? Yeah, uh, so uh, we were uh, looking at... Uh, uh, alternative ways of, uh, uh, you know, uh, providing insulin to patients uh, uh, who have to uh, currently take it uh, uh, multiple times a day by injection. Uh, so uh, we looked at uh, various pathways and we saw that, uh, uh, you know, taking the insulin uh, via the buccal membranes, uh, which are within the mouth, uh, be- below your cheek or behind your lips, uh, one can transfer insulin to the human body uh, without the need of uh, injection. So that was one of the proof of the concept uh, study that we did. Uh, we did. We, um, we we made these insulin nanoparticles and we converted them into buccal tablets. So we, we we did some animal studies and we found that uh, the the encapsulated insulin uh, uh, was almost as effective as uh, the injected insulin uh, in, in our annual study. So it, it, it is quite exciting and uh, it is 
a step in the right direction where we are trying to uh, see how we can, uh, you know, uh, further uh, uh, find ways in which we can further optimize this technology and bring it to public as soon as possible. And I understand, too. So in the past, the issue has been that with uh, uh, insulin taken orally, it's been it goes to the stomach or it accumulates in the stomach instead of going to the liver where it needs to be. But the difference here was in this particular trial and the study that was done in rats, you were able to see that the insulin actually did stay in the liver or went straight to the liver as it would, say, with an injection. Yes. yes. So if you... Uh, but, uh, we have, we have tried earlier, uh, you know, uh, making the insulin into a pill and eating it or drinking it uh, with with water. Uh, however, in that case, the insulin goes to the stomach where the environment is uh, quite acidic and uh, it, there are chances that it can, uh, you know, further uh, be, be wasted. Uh, the, the, the bioavailability of the insulin becomes quite low under those scenarios, which has been the main reason why efforts for oral insulin have not been successful up till now. Uh, in this uh, uh, pathway that we are working on, we are completely bypassing the stomach. Uh, the insulin goes through your cheeks or the inner linings of your lips directly in, into the blood membrane through which uh, it is transported to the liver where the action of the in- insulin uh, takes place. So so we are bypassing the need uh, for it to pass through the stomach. Another thing is that uh, the stomach route normally uh, is very varied and the metabolism of uh, insulin will be different in people of different uh, sizes and weights if you take it through the stomach. Uh, rather, uh, through the uh, through the buccal lining, it is much more consistent among different persons and the thickness of the buccal lining, etc. And so it is a more reliable uh, route uh, than stomach where you are basically left at the mercy of the body. Hmm. I understand, too, that uh, the inspiration for you to be involved in this and to try and find non-injectable insulin, uh, it's a very personal story. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I have been... Uh, so my father has been the diabetic. Uh, uh, I think he uh, he had the type 2 that diabetes diagnosed uh, in 1992 or something and he has been taking uh, insulin for the last uh, 10 to 15 years uh, so if, if, even if you have type 2 diabetes after a certain point the traditional drugs uh, to, to control the insulin metabolism uh, they, they, uh, they do not work that efficiently because of the resistance and so even type 2 diabetics have to take insulin injections so uh, having uh, to live with the pain of seeing a loved one having to take an injection every time before a meal, that that is something that, that did inspire me to, you know, pursue uh, uh, research in this field. And, uh, and probably that is the reason why I asked one of my new PhD students uh, uh, to work in this area. And we know then as well, much like your father, more than 300,000 Canadians are in that scenario where they're injecting insulin several times per day. Where does this go from here, seeing such promising results already in this? I know it hasn't gone to human trials, but what's next, do you think, for this research? 
So uh, we are applying for further funds. One of the key aspects here is that uh, the, the research is completely funded by uh, public funds uh, up till now, the public funds that the university receives. Uh, so uh, we are uh, we are currently applying for further funds uh, uh, in order to do these studies. Uh, for first of all, animal studies on bigger animals, uh, and uh, and then ultimately moving it to the uh, phase one clinical trials in the next two to three years. Um, and uh, obviously, before releasing to the public, we will need more clinical trials. I do foresee that at the current rate that we are going, uh, probably uh, you know we will be able to reach to the public in uh, three to five years. Three to five years. So that, I mean, it might seem like a long time for somebody that's in that scenario, but that seems very hopeful. Yes, it is. Uh, it, it is not a long time at all in research, for example. Uh, three to five years is a quite short time uh, in our arena. And that is how, you know, funding can help. Uh, obviously, we can expedite this time if we have more funding, uh, uh, but the funds are limited and so is our capacity uh, to, to invest uh, time and energy. Right, that makes sense. So looking for more funding. I would imagine, too, another benefit of this, not only for patients and being able to replace the injections, it would probably lead to a lot less medical waste as far as syringe and, um, syringes and also the cost. Yeah, uh, like it, it will lead to a, a lot less medical waste. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, syringes, and also probably lower energy requirements uh, for the healthcare industry uh, because you don't also need refrigerators uh, to keep these uh, to keep this insulin. So uh, uh, it it can just be a pill that can be held at room temperature. Currently, the insulin uh, that we have to inject, uh, we have to keep it in the refrigerator, limiting the uh, you know reach uh, of it. Uh, to uh, sections of the of the world where refrigerators might not be very common, uh, you 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 don't have reliable electricity even. Uh, all right. Well, a very interesting research. Uh, Dr. Pratap Singh, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us up to date on this. Thank you uh, so much for having me here. Have a nice day.